Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to Hope for Your Heart. This is Pastor Calvin Corbett with Hickory Ridge Community Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. So glad that you are joining us today, and we are excited about what the Lord is doing. God's mercies are new every morning. Great is His faithfulness. Well, today, I want to warn you, okay? i give you a full disclosure. Now, today's broadcast is going to be a lot different than most of the broadcasts that I do. Uh, in most of the broadcasts, I have a strong biblical emphasis, and I have a lot of Bible verses and a lot of scriptures that I use. But today, I want to tackle a subject that every one of us are dealing with, and it's called, What is the Death Movement? What is the Death Movement? Nancy R. Piercy defines what a biblical view of our love for our body should be, and she's actually written a book about it, but I wanted to spend a few minutes today kind of tackling this whole subject, and I'm going to use kind of as a backdrop her book, uh, Nancy Piercy's latest book, was written back in, uh, I think, 2018. It's called Love Thy Body. And in this particular book, she investigates both the causes and the solutions of modern culture's most serious issues. Uh, Issues concerning life and death, issues concerning sex and talking about divorce, and even the redefinition of marriage, issues of abortion, uh, euthanasia, uh, the hookup culture, uh, homosexuality, transgenderism, and more. And so what I'm doing is hopefully whetting your appetite and encouraging you to possibly purchase this book. And in this book, She develops her themes kind of from a two-story picture of secular worldview and and it's kind of its roots in the Kant's philosophy that led to a whole complete separation. And so the two basically story pictures is what she would call values from the upper story versus physical reality or the lower story. And so basically she makes the distinction between these two. And I'll try to explain that as we go through the broadcast. But here is a passage from chapter 3, where she talks about euthanasia. And in this particular subtitle, uh, she says, Euthanasia, Darwinian Path to Death. So in chapter 2, she writes about the key point in development of this two-story worldview. And uh, the two-story worldview was that Darwin's theories of evolution uh, basically said there's an upper and a lower story. And really, the upper story is where you separate the values from the physical reality. Uh, So it's not surprising that many of the leading figures who first call for abortion, first call for euthanasia, were supporters of Darwinism. Many of them advocated these things, advocated, you know, euthanasia, an attempt to improve humanity by eliminating people with disabilities, eliminating people with genetic disorders, as well as people that they deem to be of lower races. You see, in the public mind, uh, these eugenics is linked to Nazism, but in reality, it was practiced and promoted through much of the Western world even before the rise of Nazism. In the 19th century, a German biologist named Ernest Haeckel gained fame as an outspoken promoter of Darwinism theory. In his opinion, modern civilizations that care for disabled are interfering. Now get this, right? Don't miss this. Modern civilizations that care for the disabled are interfering with evolutionary principle of survival of the fittest. 
He urged them to follow the example of the Spartans, the example of the Redskins, who killed disabled infants immediately after birth. He also favored euthanasia for disabled adults. Now, on this side of the Atlantic, as well as Darwinism, led many prominent thinkers to accept abortion and euthanasia. One historian, Russett writes, writes this, the most pivotal turning point in the early history of the euthanasia movement was the coming of Darwinism to America. And from these beginnings, worse atrocities sprung. So Percy in her book details many of these examples. In some European countries, for example, euthanasia vans travel around like ice cream trucks playing music to advertise their quote-unquote services. Some modern philosophers think a child should be expendable up until the age of 12. At the other end of the age spectrum, the elderly are increasingly at risk of being treated as non-persons. And so she explains, because the culture is accepting a two-story view that personhood is in the upper story, but the body is in the lower story. And that allows governments to decide which lives have the value of personhood and which do not. Now, it started with bad ideas like those of Kant, and it culminated at a tipping point with Darwin's theory, where even the upper story of values evolves and everything is material. Now, throughout her book, she does a contrast. And in this contrast, she contrasts Darwinian two-story view of man with the Christian view of the body and the soul as a unified being made in the image of God. The consequences could hardly be more stark for society and for individuals. So she writes compassionately toward a generation that is confused. A generation that is confused over homosexuality and transgenderism. And she shows how the Bible offers hope and and peace and, and a way out of that confusion. You see, in Christianity, we can learn to enjoy and to love our bodies as part of God's creation. God created his body, soul, and spirit. They are interconnected. What happens to my body affects my soul and affects my spirit. Now, secular thinking drags America's heart's toward an ethic of death, one that views the body as worthless, life as meaningless, and feelings as supreme. Now, as she writes, she writes that our culture believes that the Bible is hateful. And this is sad, isn't it? That our culture believes just the opposite of what the Bible teaches. The Bible doesn't teach hate. The Bible is not a book that is restricting us The Bible is a book that is not hurtful or narrow or negative. You see, moral sexual issues have become a barrier to even hearing the message of salvation. Yet God's view of life and the body are presented in a way that the body is beautiful and it's flourishing and living. You see, God calls us to love our bodies, not to reject them. Now, don't take this the wrong way, right? Uh, Love thy body is quite exhaustive. And if we don't get where she's coming from, uh, we're going to come up with the wrong conclusion. 
But she digs up buried evidence and stories and ideas that reveal the true nature of secular ethics. Well, Love Thy Body is the name of the book, and it presents the coherent worldview of the Bible that elevates our view of the body. It reads kind of like a theological defense against the world's view of sex and the body. Every chapter can be read on its own, and it covers the topics thoroughly. So it gives us hope. You see, the Bible, instead of limiting us and instead of hurting us, the Bible in a biblical worldview frees people from their flesh while simultaneously elevating the body and sexuality as a place of honor. Did you know that sex is something that is very sacred? It was God's idea. He created it, and it is sacred. And that's why it ought to be treated as something that is sacred. In this particular book, we are reminded of what Carl Truman said. And Carl Truman gives a a historical survey of ideas and focus on the last few decades of where our culture has gone. And he reminds us that there's a triumph of the modern self that has been self-destructive. You see, on and off in the long history of church history, Christianity has really struggled with what is called dualism. The notion that the spiritual is good and the physical is bad. Her book hammers yet another nail into this coffin of dualism, Christian or otherwise. When we undervalue the body, we forget the value of life itself and vice versa. So as we look at what this author is reminding us of, it not only presents a clear reasoning accompanied by scientific studies, but she also touches the reader with compassion and stories of people rescued from a secular worldview. You see, there is a poison and the poison of secular dualism which says that the mind is supreme and the natural body doesn't matter. Whether that leads to the death movement, infanticide, killing the elderly, widespread abortion, suicide, eugenics, it leads to completely open sexuality, restricted by nothing but consent. As we think about that poison of secular dualism, this sexual ethic ignores biology ignores God's wisdom, and invariably leads to confusion, guilt, and sadness. It has consequences for all of society, not just for individuals. One of the things I have learned in talking to people that really embrace what you would call a secular humanist worldview is that they don't know how to deal with this matter of guilt. You see, they want the laws to be redefined, where something used to be wrong, Now it's right, and now it's okay. And they figured by legalizing sin that that would make it less guilty, or we'd no longer suffer with guilt because it's no longer illegal. And they discovered that even though it's not illegal, it doesn't help with the matter of guilt. They still are suffering with guilt. Their secular world arrives at a chilling view of human nature, and it's called personhood theory. And what it says is that that humans are not necessarily persons, so that a fetus could be a human, but is not people. Uh, The blood-curdling idea can be found in Roe v. Way, in that majority reason. Personhood theory chooses a defining trait, like rationality, and claims that it marks personhood. 
Yet this standard is arbitrary. To some ethicists, like Princeton's Peter Singer, adult chimpanzees are more of a person than human beings. Can you believe that? This kind of thinking led to slavery, eugenics, and the Holocaust, among other historical atrocities. Well, the Bible, when it is properly interpreted, is confirmed by biology. It integrates the natural with the spirit, leading to the holistic ethic that puts everything under God's authority. As I think about this whole subject, I'm reminded of what Paul says to the Ephesian believers in Ephesians 4.15, that we should speak the truth in love. And by doing that, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. Speaking the truth in love. You know, every transgender activist, Ivy Tower ethicist bent on eugenics and teacher spreading warped worldviews is an image God-bearer. Even though we disagree with them, we should still view them as not one who is hopeless, but one who is lost. Not one who is not loved by God, but a person made in the image of God and loved by God. You see, to undermine their worldview, we must practice radical compassion and love. Attacking ideas and strongholds in their worldviews, not attacking them. They're lost. You see, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rules of the darkness. You see, each is a holistic person who needs the mercy of God. They're not an enemy to be put down. After all, this author, Percy herself, was once an agnostic secularist. So I want to encourage you to read that book, Love Thy Body, if you want to deeply consider the issues of sexuality and how the Christian worldview should understand the theology of our created God-given good bodies. If your friends are struggling with what the Bible has to say and they feel like the Bible is closed-minded about issues of sexuality, get them a copy of this book. Read it to them. Even if they reject the ideas they will at least be exposed to the most truthful, excellent account of Christian sexuality that they can hope for. I want to kind of just share a few select quotes from this book. Here's the first one. Young people require more than rules. They need reasons to make sense of the rules. They desperately need a worldview rationale to counter the no big deal view of sexuality all around them. So I would encourage you to have a reason of the hope that lies within you, explaining to young people why we hold to a biblical worldview. And so many times, young people haven't been given the opportunity to follow through logically, understanding why we believe what we believe. Not too long ago, I was talking to a person, and and we were debating this issue of homosexuality. And and this person was actually raised in the church and believed that there was nothing wrong with uh, homosexual relationships. And so this person went so far to say, well, you know, Jesus never condemned homosexuality. If it is a sin, then why in the world did Jesus never condemn it as a sin? 
I said, well, you know, there's only one problem with that argument. It's a flawed argument. And I said, in Matthew chapter 19, uh, Jesus very clearly defines what marriage is. And he says that it is, is a, a relationship between one man, one woman for one lifetime. Uh, they were coming to Jesus. The Pharisees were trying to come to Jesus and trip him up on his teaching of divorce. And so Jesus goes way back to creation. And he says that God created Adam and Eve. And God created a male and female. And God said to Adam, you will leave your mother and father and you shall cleave to your wife and the two shall become one flesh. Although Jesus never specifically condemns homosexuality, he didn't really have to because he defined biblical marriage, a marriage between one man and one woman for one lifetime. He also used the argument from nature, realizing that God has created male and female to come together in a natural way, not an unnatural way. God had designed us that way so that we could be connected with one another and that we could actually bring life into this world. So I said to this particular young person, I said, now, if you look at the room that we are in, and you look at this wall, this wall is red. And I says, now, as I tell you this wall is red, that is a fact. Now, when I tell you that this wall is red, I don't have to tell you what it is not, because I've already defined what it is. I didn't have to say to you that this wall is not black, it is not white, it is not green, it is red. By defining it as red, explaining it as red, there was no need for me to explain what it was not. When Jesus is defining what marriage is, one man, one woman for one lifetime, bringing it back to the formulation and the creation of mankind, he doesn't define what it is not because he's defined what it is. By process of elimination, I guess you could say, we don't have to tell what it's not because we've already defined what it is. Well, let me give you another quote from this book, Love Thy Body. Do we live in the universe described by social contract theory, an empty cosmos of atoms bumping around in the void driven by sheer self-interest, or do we live in a cosmos shaped by a personal God who created us to be ordered, ordered relationships directed toward the common good. I think it's very clear that there is order in our universe. There's also order in how God wants us to be living socially with one another. God always has a reason and a purpose for everything that he does. He doesn't work in an arbitrary fashion. We live in a universe that has order. It's not just a void and empty cosmos. It has order and it has control. I want you to know that you can count on the sun rising from the east and setting in the west. Every single day that happens. It doesn't arbitrarily happen. It's because God has ordered that to happen. And not only has he ordered it and created to do that, he is maintaining that consistency. Well, here's another quote from the book. As marriage weakens... The state grows more invasive and more expensive. And as the state regulates even more aspects of family life, citizens lose their freedoms. Now, isn't this such a true statement? We see the demise of marriage. You know, many years ago, I was listening to an interview of the late President Ronald Reagan. 
And this person who was interviewing President Reagan says, now, President Reagan, uh, what has been your greatest regret in your life? And he goes way back. He says, my greatest regret in life is when I was governor of California and I signed a piece of legislation that I wish I had never signed. And he says, California was the first state to have no-fault divorce. And he says, I was the one that signed that into law. And I regret that I signed that into law because he understood later in his life that as marriage weakens, the state grows more invasive, more expensive. You just look at how many laws are on the books today. Uh, We're not having fewer regulations. We're having more regulations. We are losing our freedoms as marriage weakens. Well, there's another quote that I'd liked in this book. Our feelings do not define us. Our moral commitments define us. We find fulfillment when we find ways to live in congruence with our deepest commitments. Now, this is such an important thing because feelings are so fleeting. I don't know if you have noticed this, but I've noticed that some days I feel good, some days I feel really bad. Sometimes I'm in a good mood and other times I'm in a really sour, bad mood. Feelings are up and down and all over the place. Now, I'm not denying feelings. Feelings are real. God has given us feelings. There's nothing inherently wrong with feelings, but feelings cannot define us. Our commitments define us. Can I tell you when I got married many years ago, uh, 34 years ago, my wife and I got married. And I got to tell you, some days I feel like I really love her. Some days, no, it's a different story. Those feelings come and go. But I made a commitment that I'm going to love her Till death do us part. <laughs> you know, last night in our small group, we were all gathered around just talking, and, and we were talking about how long the couples in my small group had been married. We have some that had, had been married just a few years, and, and then we had others who were married uh, for a couple decades, and, and then we had a few that, that were married in, into their 40th and 45th year of marriage, but we had one couple in our group last night. Uh, as we gathered together, who had been married for 56 years. Isn't that wonderful? I promise you in that 56 years of that long-term marriage, uh, those feelings were often up and down and all over the place. But feelings do not define us. Our moral commitments do. There's another quote that I really liked in the book, and it says this, Transhumanist utopia vision is an illusion. Let me read that to you again. Transhumanist utopia, vision is an illusion. What counts most in producing a truly humane society is not the level of a technology, but the prevailing worldview. In other words, as technology increases, that doesn't stop all of the problems that we face as a society. Problems should be faced by a biblical worldview. That's been the most successful way of dealing with problems. Technology is neither good nor bad. Now, it can be helped to carry out a worldview, but it can never be an end in itself. There's another quote that I wanted to kind of close off the broadcast with. And uh, this is kind of a longer quote, so I'll probably spend a few minutes just kind of explaining where the author is going on this. Here's the quote, in vitro fertilization and good medicine use, technology to overcome the effects 
of the fall or the fail to repair or compensate for a deficiency or malfunctioning in nature. And like other forms of technology, it can be an expression of the biblical principle of dominion over nature. Today, however, technology has gone from being an asset for natural reproduction to being a method to defy nature, to assert choice over natural production. So here the author is reminding us that good medicine, good technology, when it comes to the matter of reproduction, can be used either for good or for bad. And unfortunately for today, we're using it as a bad means to assort choice over natural production. Well, I hope this has been uh, useful to you today in the broadcast. I hope it's helped to broaden your understanding of this subject of the death movement. If I can help you in any way, if I can pray for you, or if I can help you in another way, any other way, would you please send me a text at 252-267-2365, 252-267-2365. I so appreciate you joining in the broadcast today. My prayers are with you, and, uh, and I'm so excited to be alive at this time uh, in history where we have these great advances in technology, but we also can use these advances in technology for sharing the gospel wherever we go. Well, God bless you. Thank you so much for joining me today. If you'd like to hear this broadcast again, you can have a free download at buzzsprout.com backslash 1890557, or you can listen on Amazon, Spotify, Google Podcast, and Apple Podcast. Hickory Ridge Community Church is located at 3320 Battlefield Boulevard South in Chesapeake, Virginia. Sunday service times are 9 a.m. and 1030 a.m. We'd love for you to join us. For more information, go to hrcc7.org. And remember, no matter what you're going through, in Jesus Christ, there is always hope for your heart.